Hello and welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast, our bi-weekly podcast exploring the key issues facing green economy professionals in the UK and beyond. You're listening to Sarah George, ED's reporter, and I'm coming directly to you from our offices in sunny East Grinstead, West Sussex. I'm fully aware that this is the part of the podcast where Luke would usually say that the episode's going to be, for example, cooler than an air purifying t-shirt, more innovative than trainers made from recycled chewing gum, and more engaging than an Extinction Rebellion protest. Um, But for those of you who are a fan of his dulcet tones, I've got a bit of bad news, which is that I'm currently the only one here in our impromptu recording studio. Yes, the boys have left me to my own devices for this, the 61st episode in the Sustainable Business Covered series, which is, to be honest, pretty brave of them. Um, But there is a good reason for this. Long-term listeners will know that the exclusive interviews we usually bring you in each episode span across an array of topics. So episode 59 spanned from sustainable brewing to furniture resale, but this episode will hopefully be a bit more joined up. Um, I'm coming at you on Thursday, April 18th, and today marks the start of Fashion Revolution Week 2019. So this episode is going to be covering all things to do with green garments, from carbon emissions to modern slavery. As you could probably guess from the name, Fashion Revolution event is run by Fashion Revolution, the NGO which is striving to boost transparency across the global fashion sector in the hope that this will thereby get companies to improve their human rights and environmental standards and get policymakers to do the same across the board. We've been working with this group for a while now and their first week took place in April 2014 it was marking the anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, which I'm sure everyone will be sorely aware of. Um, this disaster in Bangladesh killed more than 1,100 people, mainly garment workers, sparking a wave of fresh engagement and awareness as to how clothing is made and what this is doing to the environment and to the people who make the things we wear. And that awareness reached consumers, governments and businesses alike. Since 2014, Fashion Revolution Week, and indeed Fashion Revolution itself, has become something of a global phenomenon. Throughout the year, you'll have been hard-pressed not to see tweets with the hashtag WhoMadeMyClothes on Twitter, or posts with the same tag on Instagram. Um, And in the week, this culminates in real-life action. There are going to be community groups, individuals and businesses across the world hosting events to raise awareness of all of the environmental and social challenges born from the fast fashion business model over the next few days. So chances are, no matter where you are, there'll be something going on near you. But we thought there'd also therefore be no better time to host a podcast on the topic of sustainable fashion, hearing from those at the forefront of the drive to make the sector beneficial to both people and planet. So in this episode, I'll be hearing from experts across the fashion sphere, starting with the founder and director of Fashion Revolution herself, Carrie Summers. I'll then be joined for a brief talk with Tom Kay, the founder and director of, and Tom, if you're listening, I'm so sorry that I pronounced this badly in the interview, Finestere. Um, If you regularly listen to this podcast, you'll be familiar with this brand as the outdoor clothing brand that beat Patagonia to using recycled polyester and used ultra-sustainable wool before the North Face. So this makes Tom a fountain of knowledge for innovative leadership in fashion sustainability. For the next stop in our podcast, it's Shropshire Calling, and I dial in with Kate Holbrook, the founder of recycled and ethical cashmere brand Turtle Doves. She'll be shedding some light on how SMEs can play their part in shaping a sustainable fashion future. Yes, it's a packed episode as usual, or so it seems. 
Without further ado, here is my first chat. That's with Fashion Revolution's founder, Carrie Summers, in full. Great. So as you would expect, we couldn't do a podcast on Fashion Revolution Week without speaking to Fashion Revolution themselves. So on the phone with me today, I have Carrie Summers, who is the founder and director of the organisation, who set the organisation up in 2013 in the wake of the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh. So Carrie, thank you very much for joining me today. I imagine it must be pretty hectic at Fashion Revolution HQ throughout April. Around, but particularly from January onwards. I mean, sometimes it's a bit strange, actually, Fashion Revolution Week. It's, it's sometimes my quietest week of the year because all of the work has already been done for us. <laughs> we can just enjoy the events and everything that's, that's happening. So, um, but yes, no, I mean, there's a huge amount of preparation from the entire team which goes into this week. No, I can imagine. And I wanted to ask by starting out and asking, so since you've since you founded the organisation, it's garnered so much support from the public, um, certain parts of the industry, governments. I think I've I read on your website that you've even met with the Queen to gain recognition for your work. But since then, do you think that a revolution has actually happened? Like, where are we? Where are we at? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, so much progress has been made in the past years in certain areas. So, for instance, we're seeing levels of disclosure of suppliers, uh, which have, have really increased. And we, this year, we will be releasing our Fashion Transparency Index 2019 in April. But in the 2018 edition, we saw 37% of the 150 grand surveyed disclosing their first-tier suppliers. So that's where the clothing is cut and, and sewn together. And that was up from just 12.5% two years ago. Mm. So that is a really significant increase because disclosing those suppliers means that it's so much easier for unions, NGOs, even workers on the ground to, um, to, to highlight any human rights or environmental abuses which might be happening. And of course, it's also easier for the brands to to, to protect their own reputation. So that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But there's so many areas which still need addressing. For instance, when you get down to beyond the first tier into those processing facilities, we've only seen that go up to 18% of brands disclosing their, their processing facilities. I think the previous year it was 14%. Much slower progress there. And really, once you dig down beyond that first tier, everything gets a lot murkier. I was in Bangladesh just over a year ago and I visited the tanneries, and I was told that only 5 to 10% of the, the tanneries and the shoe and footwear factories mm. are actually, um, you know, have acceptable labour standards in Bangladesh. And when I went to the tanneries, I was told that no brand ever visits the tanneries. And these were brands, you know, producing for for major brands, even some of those that mass-produced luxury brands as well as fast fast fashion. And there was effluent going into the drainage ditches, there was underage workers, there was no protection being being worn. So it's it's a sh- yeah, it I mean it's difficult. There has been progress. But a lot more needs to be done. But really, the industry is still operating broadly in the same way which enabled the Rana Plaza uh, factory complex to 
appeared to collapse in the first place. It's still relying on auditing for compliance, and that really needs to change. And that's why we need we need a revolution. We need a completely different industry model to really make sure that a disaster of that scale won't happen again. Mm. And I know anyone that's been following Fashion Revolution will be aware of the comms piece around it with the I made your clothes, who made your clothes pictures and with calling for beyond audit policy. But something that we get a lot um, coming through to our news desk is a lot of stories about technologies that could help on transparency. So do you see, for example, things like blockchain or satellite mapping speeding up that revolution or, or in comparison to, say, policies or lobbying? much that technology can do from the, the new um, open apparel database which is crowdsourced through to the DNA which can actually be put onto the, the cotton um, before it's baled so you can trace the cotton back to where it's grown and this is incredibly important. I mean countries like Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan if you look at a lot of brand policies, they're saying they won't buy cotton from those countries, and yet they manage to sell their entire production every year. They're some of the biggest suppliers, and very few brands actually admit to buying them. And a lot of that is because cotton, which is grown in Uzbekistan, is routinely labelled made in Bangladesh. Mm. And you know, it's really quite understandable that people don't know what they're buying if they're buying bales of cotton which are mislabeled. So we're actually putting that DNA into the cotton and being able to then scan a garment in a retailer and find out where that cotton came from. You know, that that, that kind of technology will really do so much to increase transparency. Mm-hmm. And then we've already touched just there on the transparency index, but one of the other big publications that you guys come out with that we received late last year was the Consumer Survey. So that was, I think, 5,000 shoppers across the EU um, and promisingly, the majority <laughs> said that that brands um, should be required by law to do more to protect human rights and the environment while they're making products and to provide more information um, um, about about this. But I wanted to ask on on this that sustainability is such a broad term in the fashion industries. So how do you? sort of narrow that down and communicate it with the public in a way that's gathered such a big following? Yes, and I think where Fashion Revolution has been really successful is taking those those really complex issues and actually unpackaging them. Because sometimes it's, you know, it's very easy to turn off because it seems like such a huge issue that we can't do, do anything to address and our contributions sometimes seem so small. So I think it's it's important to, you know, when there's reports and surveys out, to actually be able to to put that down to bite-sized chunks so people can see it on social media. And our mantra is be curious, find out, and do something about it. So if you see a statistic which piques your interest, you think, gosh, is that really true? You know, that's a really shocking statistic. that people can then go in and find out uh, more the resources we've got, like the Fashion Transparency Index, like the Garment Workers Worker Diaries from 2017, which was the biggest survey ever conducted of 540 garment workers in India, Cambodia, and Bangladesh. And there's so much information on the website where people can dig deeper if they are interested. And then the other thing that's really important, of course, is just making people aware that they are a part of the solution and that Mm. whatever they do, those small steps they take, really do make a difference. 
I was told in 2014, at the end of the first Fashion Revolution Week, by somebody who worked as a consultant for several brands, that for every one person who bothered to go on social media and ask the brand who made my clothes, they took that as representing 10,000 people who felt the same way but couldn't be bothered to do anything about it. And I think that shows the real power we have as consumers. Brands are listening, brands are changing, um, and brands are becoming more transparent because people are asking who made my clothes. And it's not that difficult to do. If you don't do it on social media, it's easy to just to do it when you go to the shop. Whenever I go shopping, I ask the shop assistant, so I have to buy something new from the shop. I'll ask them, you know, which is the most ethical tra- trainer brand you're shopping? Do you know where this Frisco has come from for, the, for this cardigan? And I'll ask the questions because then if people are asked questions in the shop and they don't know, they'll either go and find out or they'll ask their manager. And the more people are asked, the more brands will realise that their customers want that information and they will become more transparent. And then, as as you say, I think the last update we got on how many people follow you on Twitter and how many people have engaged with your campaign hashtags was back last year. Do you, I mean, since then, what's been happening? Do you think it's changed more brand action and more consumer behaviour? Yes, undoubtedly. I, mean, I think our figures for the year were about 3.2 million in terms of engaging, whether that's watching videos or... Um, you know, engaging on social media or taking part in a consumer survey or um, doing a whole alternative. You know, there's, there's lots of different levels of engagement, attending attending events and that sort of thing as, as well. So, yes, we're certainly seeing a lot more engagement year on year. And, you know, I'm hoping that in April we're going to see, again, our highest engagement today. So, I mean, I've just been in Mexico. I got back at the weekend. And there's just so much interest there, so many people engaged and excited and, you know, arranging um, open factory events with their designers and their um, producer groups together and making documentaries to showcase the artisanal work behind the product. So I think more and more people are realising this is an incredible opportunity to show the faces, to show, you know, that, that there really are people behind the clothes that we make and for those smaller brands and designers who are working in a different way, who do have a different model and who are working in a more sustainable fashion, it really represents an opportunity to talk to their customers about you know, why their processes are different and, mm-hmm. and to show that they can be fully transparent and, and show the faces and, and give real information and data about the people making our clothes. Okay, fantastic. I think it'd be good to end it on that positive note. So all that's left is to thank Carrie for joining us. And what what are you going to be up to now before before the week kicks off? Um, I'm off to Budapest Fashion Week in Hungary uh, at the beginning of next week. And other than that, just a lot of preparation. We're just bringing together the results of our Fashion Transparency Index. So the research has been done, the brands have fed back. So that's been compiled at the moment. I've just written the forward to that. So going through that, that data, making sure it's all, all correct and presenting the results to the, the brand. So that's, that's one of the next things that we as a team are, are working on. And just preparing, we have our you know, amazing fashion open studios again happening in um, in the UK and beyond. We have Fashion Question Time, which this year is at the V&A. 
So really just preparing for those events, of course, a lot of a lot of press interviews and then just a lot of behind the scenes work as, as well. So yes, it's, it's really exciting. But I think there's a lot, a lot of really interesting things that are going to be happening during this Fashion Revolution Week and throughout the year. And I think it's really important we don't just don't see this as one week of activation because really to see you know, real sustained revolutionary change in the industry, we have to see this, this maintained throughout the year and we have to keep up the pressure on, on the brands and retailers and the factory owners to, to make the changes that are required to, to make a safer and cleaner fashion industry. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking some time out to join us on the podcast today, Kerry. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Carrie for joining us during this podcast in what must be the most hectic time of the year for her. Not that, I, not that the sustainable fashion agenda ever stops. That concludes the end of part one of this podcast. Join us in part two, where we'll be heading over to Cornwall for a brief talk with Tom Kay from Finisterre. Welcome back to... Part two of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, our Fashion Revolution Week 2019 special. We're now turning from fingerless gloves to wetsuits as I dial into Cornwall to speak to Tom Kay from Finisterre. He's been a bit of a stalwart on this podcast, but we haven't had him on in a while. So I'm sure you'll be as happy as I am to hear that talk in full. So next on our Fashion Revolution tour, I'm having a chat on the phone here with Tom Kay, who is the founder and director at Finesta. And he's been on here several times before, but not for not for a while, I don't think, Tom. Is that right? Yeah, no, yeah, that's not sort of it. Great. Well, good to catch up up with you. Um, for this then, and I know we've talked a lot before about specific initi- initiatives like um, like your digital supply chain traceability tool or about circular economy um, initiatives, but as you know, this is Fashion Revolution Week, and I just wanted to ask, so both myself and Fashion Revolution have only been involved in this agenda since like the early 2010s, but you've been going since 2003, so what what have you seen happening since then? Um, yeah, I mean, quite a lot has happened. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of, you know, I think people say that, you know, there's change, nothing happens for a long time and suddenly everything happens um, really quickly. So for us, it definitely feels like that, that's kind of been the case. I think you know, we've been kind of pushing a sustainable innovation agenda since you started, what the brand was founded on. Um, and, you know, it was, it was definitely a lot harder um, in the early years. Mm. Even getting, you know, recycled fabrics or working with wools and or natural fibres is really hard. And um, it's good, I suppose, to watermark around the availability of that sort of uh, fabric and those sort of products and materials um, has really, really increased. And um, people, you know, are really aware of it, the importance of, um, of this in, in, in their garment makeup. Mm. And do you think that that's been driven by action from companies such as yourself, or do you think it's coming from perhaps investors or policymakers instead? Um, definitely. I mean, I don't think it's really come from policymakers. And um, you know, I think for us, we kind of had a kind of we had quite a pioneering outlook in terms of why we exist as business and what we're here to do, and that's kind of been in the business since day one. Mm. Um, so it's really, um, it's really um, kind of, I suppose. You know, for us to work with uh, suppliers, educate customers, and when we do collaborations, work with 
by the brands to really kind of push an agenda that um, that needs to be pushed. Mm. And then interestingly about this, so you guys sell a lot of outdoor clothing and we find this as well with companies like the North Face and Patagonia and Surf Dome seem to be heavily invested in this agenda as well. So do you think there's something about existing in that space that makes communicating sustainability with your stakeholders a little easier? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think that it's obviously like, you know, you, I think probably you might sort of think that, um, you know, you, I suppose the kind of the sort of, the rationale is that as you're outside, you are closer to the environment, which I think is, that is true. And hopefully you've got more awareness of the importance of protecting and conserving it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it means that you are necessarily an environmentalist just because, or you are an ethical consumer just because you are, in that, you know, you are an outside environment. Mm. I guess it would help that you've been founded, though, on, on this purpose-led um, sort of foundation. There are obviously a lot of big companies that are now looking for their purpose or tweaking their brand vision in line in line with this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of... I think that's up to, you know, customers to really uh, connect and ask questions of brands that they are buying from um, regarding supply chain, traceability... Uh, you know, quality of product, all that sort of thing, and uh, because there are, you know, everyone's now, you know, really pushing this agenda, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's important that, um, you know, the, the kind of people that really are doing it, uh, that is recognised by customers and communities. Mm. And that would arguably be the whole point of Fashion Revolution Week with the hashtag Who Made My Clothes and this whole idea of actually going to brands and going online and asking them those questions. Um, so, are you, are you guys doing anything to celebrate the week this year? Yeah, I think Debbie's uh, product director is really um, heavily involved in that week. In, I think it's been a couple of weeks, isn't it? So, um, yeah, we're kind of we're kind of we're active on that front, definitely. Mm-hmm. Great. And then you you talked about there the need for ev- that everyone is sort of getting involved in yeah. this sustainable fashion agenda but like I've said to some of the other interviewees on this podcast that sustainability is such a big umbrella for this industry that suffers from multiple challenges both social and environmental and at the moment where do you think the focus is is on I mean it's arguably been on plastics and microplastics but then also a lot going on about fast fashion and traceability as well um I think yeah I think kind of there's a sort of, there's a more of a sort of hopefully a um, a deeper question around sustainability and what that actually means. I mean, if you if you're kind of being very philosophical about it, you could say that you're in fashion, you are in sustainable business. So um, for us, you know, it's kind of our connection is to the sea. It's about relationship with the sea and have making sure there's an emotive connection to sustainability. Um, not just one that says it's sustainable on a pack, you know, bit of packaging or on the outside of you know, you know, whatever you're selling. So it's a much deeper connection for us, and if we can connect people emotionally to an environment and ours the sea, then our kind of intention is with that comes a sustainable way of life and uh, buying for brands that you know we do kind of whose products match up that intention. Mm-hmm. Great. And then I just wanted to ask as well, you said earlier that that sort of change to date hasn't been led by policy since you guys founded and instead by companies. 
um, that have thought a bit outside the box on this. But obviously there has been the first inquiry into this in Westminster um, last year. So are there any policies that you'd like to see off the back of that or that you think could actually make a difference? No, definitely seeing a lot more of of those multi-stakeholder partnerships popping up. So yeah. fingers crossed that there'll be more this year. Is that something that you guys yourself are involved in? Um, yeah, we're we're, in, you know, we're involved in kind of. Um, I mean, we kind of we kind of get on with what we do, and um, you know, we're often at talks and events and on panels discussing this, um, this you know, this these, these matters and what is important. Um, but also, we, we don't wait for you know policy to tell us what to do. You know, for us, it's you know we've got a lot we can get on and do now. We can you know improve our transparency hub. We can improve our supply chain relationships. We can get more visible how we work. So we we try and do that first and sort of lead by example rather than waiting for policy. I suppose. Okay, great. That's everything I had down to ask you, Tom. So thank you so much for your insight today. Well, there you have it. Insight from one of the men at the forefront of the sustainable fashion revolution in the outdoor clothing space. Join me in part three, where I'll be talking to another non-high street brand, Turtle Doves, about how they are creating a closed loop model for cashmere. Yes, welcome back once again to part three of our Sustainable Business Covered podcast for Fashion Revolution Week 2019. So we've heard from Fashion Revolution themselves and from one non-high street brand, Finisterre, um, but when I was setting up this podcast, I thought it would be good to find out a little more about how the smaller businesses can play their part in this transition to a more sustainable fashion model and the challenges and advantages that a smaller size can bring. I'm therefore calling in with Kate Holbrook, who founded Turtle Doves in 2009. Without further ado, here's that chat in full. So next up with me on our Fashion Revolution um, episode is Kate Holbrook, who is the founder of um, Turtle Doves, a small a small brand um, specialising in cashmere, recycled cashmere um, products. So thank you for joining me, Kate. Yes, and could you just tell our listeners a bit more about the brand and your motivation behind setting it up? Yes, so um, I started the business, well we're in our 10th year now, and it was uh, basically because I wanted a pair of cashmere fingerless gloves, and um, <laughs> they, I'd, I'd had an accident, I'd had to leave my job because I had health issues, and then um, I decided that instead of buying new cashmere gloves, which I couldn't afford, I would source an old jumper and try and make some. And that's where it all began. Um, and I've always been quite passionate about reuse. I used to work many years ago for a company called Scrap Scrap who reused textiles. So 
to me it was natural to try and find something that I'd already already lived once and then give it a good second meaningful life. Mm-hmm. And then how big would you say the business is? I've got here that you've got a little studio in Shrewsbury um, going on, but how does it work? Do you retail online? Do you have a shop? Yeah, so we, we, we've got quite a good online presence. As I said, I started it um, myself and at a market store, but there's now a team of about 50 of us, and we ship internationally all over the world, but our biggest market is the UK market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do have one shop in Shrewsbury, and we have a wholesale at some points in our in our history, but at the moment we are really um, mostly an online supplier and we ship hundreds mm-hmm. of orders a day. So a small, maybe getting to small to medium size mm-hmm. business. Great. And then what would you say the advantages and disadvantages of being a business of that size and trying to be a sustainable fashion leader are? At previous panels we've had perhaps um, some of the larger brands might be more risk adverse but then they might also have more leverage to change things. So what's it like being a company of your size in, in, this, in this agenda? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it, that, um, that it's, it's much easier to try new things when you're small. There's a lot less space to lose, and you can go, you know, it, particularly when I first started out, and for years I've done market stalls as the business has grown, and we've innovated and made new products, products out of our own waste and shared those with our customers and we've got feedback and we've improved them and it's quite um it's much easier when you're small and have um a real good uh, face-to-face and um sort of close uh, connection with your customer mm-hmm. to try things and to to innovate yeah. um and also i think it's easier to appear credible and genuine because people meet either me or a member of the team and know how passionate we are and how much we care about what we're doing Mm. and so for a bigger business I think it's a lot harder people will probably be more likely to eye roll and say yeah but do they really mean that Mm. Um, and then with the leverage that definitely has affected us we've managed to get past that point but for quite a long time we've had it hard to source our raw material because people didn't really believe you know when I would ring up and say hi we're an eco band and I'd like to buy some of your waste they say, mm-hmm. yeah, right, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I didn't sound, I didn't have all the right words and the, um, the sort of the, maybe even the money behind me of a big brand, but we've gradually gained the trust of the people we buy from, and now we do buy substantial amounts of um, post-consumer waste, cashmere, and um, that, that's been, but that's been a hard journey, and I think if we were a bigger brand, that would have been less difficult. Mm. Yeah, because obviously you'll need a smaller supply chain to match. If it was, for example, Primark that had a recycled cashmere range, they'd need a global cashmere supply chain, I could imagine. Yes, Uh, and also that touches on another of the advantages of being small, because when when you're trying to reuse, if something's already been made into a textile product, then you have to talk deconstruction before you talk reconstruction, mm -hmm. and every product is different. So unless you're actually going to, um, say, pull the jumpers, um, card them and remit them into another yarn, actually what you have to do is take every piece individually. And it's quite a technical challenge to decide. If, if you look at, say, we were going to do it with denim, and you look at one size, a size 8 pair of jeans compared to a size 22, you do very different things with them. So I think um, scaling up this kind of thing is also very challenging, and you almost learn how to do it by starting small. So mm-hmm. somebody like Primark would be able to maybe to access that much waste wouldn't necessarily have the learning and the skills to know how, what to do with it 
and to make it into the new thing. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of course. And then we've talked a lot here about the circular economy and the resource efficiency benefits mm-hmm. of the business model that you have going on. But I know that it must also have other benefits and maybe ethics, carbon and water. Would you mind elaborating on that? Because we know that sustainable fashion, what really is sustainable? Is it to do with the circular economy? Is it to do with any of those other supply chain things? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, none of it, all, all of it is important, isn't it? You know, and so making, being informed and making the right choices um, is, is important all the way through. For us, it's definitely for me personally, it's a circular economy. It's taking something that already exists um, and making something out of it which is practical, useful, and can exist for longer on this earth usefully when it would have just been seen to be waste and thrown away. Or even, I mean, even if not, you know, God forbid, going into the ground, a lot of textile waste goes into like carpet underlay or filling for inside car seats mm-hmm. or whatever happens to it. And I'd rather things live usefully for longer before they come up, become mushed up stuff or, you know, worst case scenario, do go into the ground, which is dreadful. Mm. Um, and because of how we reuse things, we, we do wash and dry the garments we buy, so they're, they're clean, but we never re-dye them. Or we, it's, it's a very low impact. In fact, really, it's, re, um, it's not so much recycling. It's, it's actually putting it to... And you use it upcycling. I just don't like that word very much. Um, so I prefer the word recycling. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So does that, does that answer the question? Of course. Yeah, of course. It's all interlinked, as in prolonging an item's life and making it more circular will, in turn, lower its carbon footprint over its life cycle anyway. So, of course, it's all connected. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask as as well on this. There's been a lot of talk lately about how policy could support circular fashion so I'm sure you will have read the EAC's report on recommendations um what what did you make of the report and do you think that what actions would you like to see politicians and policy makers take to get other people on board with this fashion revolution I'm not convinced that politics and politicians can do much I have to be completely honest I haven't read the report I would very be very happy to go now and answer the question properly but I actually feel that people, individuals, need to to take on board how they use what they have and making it last longer. And maybe maybe policy will help, but I do think that often that um, seems to be shouting into the wind. It doesn't always help. What are you and the brand doing to take part in Fashion Revolution Week? I know there's a lot of events and media coverage. Yeah, yeah, so we're really excited this year because... Um, over the years, we've always like printed off the we made your clothes and supported it and worn clothes inside out and all the other things that they've done and I've shared information. But this year, we've actually got an event at our studio in, in Shrewsbury in Shropshire on Saturday the 27th of April and we are having a, a zero waste wardrobe uh, uh, sort of chat and there's going to be um, some also some information um, about how to mend clothes and people get a chance to have a go at mending something and taking it away with them so um it should be a really a really fun session and it's the first time we've been properly involved any more than just being on social media so we're really excited about that well there you go if you're listening from shrewsbury or the surrounding area that might be a plan for you to put in your diary but yeah come from further <laughs> we love visitors <laughs> but no so that's all i have 
to Ask Kate today. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. I think this is your first ED podcast, or even your first podcast in general. It is, yes, yes. So it's been, it's been really lovely um, to chat with you, and thank you for asking me. No, thanks for joining us. So, some great insight from Kate there, and a part of the fashion picture which sometimes doesn't get the publicity it should. So, there you have it, the final piece of our podcast puzzle. We have come to the end of our sustainable fashion exploration for today's episode, but if you're keen to find out more, you can always search by keyword on ed.net for more sustainable fashion stories. The other good news is, for those of you that are now tired of hearing my voice, and I won't blame you, is that the rest of the team is going to be joining me for our next Sustainable Business Covered podcast episode. It will be going live in early May and is going to explore what low-carbon leadership looks like across an array of different sectors, ranging from banking to transport and food and drink. You may have also spotted that we are now running a mini-podcast series to supplement the Sustainable Business Covered series, and these are called The Big Brexit Questions. Um, Each of these is rounding up what our exit from the EU will mean for various parts of the UK's green economy and beyond in 15 minutes or less. The first one of these episodes is all about resource efficiency, in which I talk to the ESA's Libby Forest, and that is live on the site now, so do feel free to check it out. But until our next of these episodes, it's goodbye from me, and take care. Goodbye.